It is my privilege uh, to welcome uh, Kristen uh, Martins. She's going to be sharing with us this morning. Kristen has been a part of our congregation for years, and we're delighted to have her sharing with us as a part of this series. So let's all just welcome her with a warm round of applause. Thanks. I don't know if I've ever been welcomed with an applause before. That's kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah, so my name is Kristen. I am married to Scott. He was playing the guitar in that corner this morning. And we have three kids. Andrew is married to Leah, so I guess now we have four kids. And Tim is our middle son. He's in college in Saskatoon. And our daughter Mandy's in high school still. We have been attending this church since about 1998, but we did take a little detour for a few years where I took the children's pastorate at Victory Church down the street, but when I resigned from that position, it just felt normal to come home to our family, so we came back. And currently, I work for Horizon College and Seminary. It is a Bible college in Saskatoon. You may have maybe known it as Central Pentecostal College. That's what it was previously. And I actually owe my life to this school because my parents met there in 1962. <laughs> so, so my parents went there. I attended there in my early young adult years. And my oldest son went there, met his wife there, and now Tim is there. We're holding out for Mandy. I don't know if, that, if that's going to be her plan or not. We'll see. Um, But I'm just really honored to be here today. Um, This series has been really interesting and exciting, learning about our brains and learning about um, how pathways work and how our minds are complex. And Pastor Kurt spoke those first two weeks. I'm just going to move this up so I can read my notes a little easier. He spoke the first two weeks on the replacement principle and the rewire principle. So the replacement principle was talking about how we need to replace lies we may be believing, we may be believing, with God's truth. The rewire principle was talking about recognizing that we are in a spiritual battle and that we need God's help to recreate these pathways in our minds to overcome obstacles. Pastor Dave spoke last week on the reframe principle, learning and remembering to see that God is good and he is working amidst the trials that we face and today, we're going to talk about the rejoice principle. And I feel like I, feel like I got the hard one. <laughs> I, I feel like it's hard sometimes to rejoice in trial. But, and we also see in Scripture that it says in Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then we see in James 1, verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. And then in Acts, it talks about Paul and Silas. They're singing and praising while they're in jail. So there's this theme that when we're in trials, we're to praise. But it's hard, right? Are you with me? Is it hard? (laughs) I feel that it's hard. There are times when life just feels very overwhelming, and it is hard to praise when we have trials. I don't know if you have ever felt panic, where your heart starts racing, 
and it just starts going, and you can't calm down, and you just feel like, oh, I just want to get out of here. There are moments like that when we have, we have in life, when we face crises, when we face things that are harder than what we feel that we can handle. And we want to talk about that a little bit today, of how we can get to praising even in the storms of life. Now, when I was a kid, I always knew that I was just a little bit different. Like, all the kids around me at school were tracking with the teacher. They were with them. They were reading and learning normal. And then there was me. And I felt like I was this odd one out that couldn't focus very well, that couldn't read very well. And, you know, in the glorious 80s, if you weren't doing well in your class in elementary school, you would just fail the class and have to retake it with the kids younger than you. And you were, it's kind of embarrassing. Like, you didn't want that. And then when you got to high school, if you were not keeping up in the regular classroom, you were put into this other classroom that they would call special ed. That's what it was in my school. And it was always like, oh, Lord, please just help me get through this so I don't end up in special ed. And I always felt moments of panic. So when I was a child, I was very quiet at school, which those of you who know me now know that sounds impossible. But <laughs> I was very quiet as a child, because I just wanted to fly under the radar. I didn't want the teacher to notice me. I just wanted to smoothly go through school. And it was hard for me because I had a hard time focusing. But I also had um, this ability that I knew that I needed to listen to the teacher really intently in class because I knew that reading wasn't going to just cut it for me. So I somehow just mucked my way through school and struggled. And, you know, now my parents, later in life, when we figured all this out, they were like, how did we not know that you were struggling? But I kept it. It was like my little secret of panic inside me. It was this secret that I carried that it was tough, and it was just something that I had to get through. Now, in the 80s, there wasn't much for diagnosing learning disabilities. And I am so thankful that now our education system has come a long way and there are lots of helps for students to succeed and actually be celebrated. Um, but those of you who did grow up in the 80s or back in the day when school was a little different, it didn't look like now. Like I think back to one of my teachers, he would walk around with a meter stick in his hand and he would just keep it there and almost use it like a cane. And he would just wait until a kid would lean up on their desk, like lean up to talk to the kid in front of them, and just whack the kid in the bum with a meter stick. <laughs> and I just keep, I think of that, and I think, man, you try that now, you'd be in big trouble. <laughs> or I think of another time when a teacher took masking tape and just took it and went round and round and round this kid's head just to be, shut him up. He was so talking all the time. And I just thought, oh, that's going to hurt when he pulls that off. It's all in his hair. <laughs> And all of you younger parents right now are probably gasping, saying, oh my goodness, what was it like back then? <laughs> but we somehow survived, and um, we probably didn't love on our teachers maybe as much as some of the students do now that my husband's a teacher, and some of his kids, they just want to hug him. And one kid like, wanted to like, play with his arm hairs, just sit there and play with his arm hairs. <laughs> so kids are very affectionate with their teachers now, which is very interesting. <laughs> Um, but anyways, I managed to graduate high school, Bible college, business college, somehow by the grace of God, but it was hard 
We have times in life when it's hard, and there are moments where it's just hard to rejoice and it's hard to get through. I used all kinds of different weird methods to make it through. I used charts and graphs and colored pens, like those pens. If you, again, if you're from the 80s, you know the pens that were blue on the bottom and white on the top, and then they had all the colors on the top that you could click down? Those were, the, those were great. Those helped me immensely to get through studying. And I didn't dare study with any of my friends because if they saw my very unconventional ways to learn, I would be outed, and I didn't want that to happen. So I hid that secret for so long. Even into Bible college and into business college, I would do all kinds of things to try and pass and get there. And I did, but I just thought that I was cheating, that I was cheating the system. But I am thankful that in my early 20s, Dr. Falk, he's a former principal at Cornerstone Christian School and a dear friend of ours, he was able to diagnose me eventually with ADHD and dyslexia. And it really helped me realize that it's, it's, I'm different, but that I was smart. And he called me smart, and I was like, he called me smart. <laughs> and that was a big turning point for me to just feel that it's okay to be who God created me to be. And we've been talking about this the last few weeks of rewiring our brains. And I had to learn to rewire my brain and not see myself as dumb. I was seeing a counselor a few years ago, and he referred to it as my dumb button, <laughs> that there are things that trigger my dumb button. And I find that that happens. And I need to rewire my brain so that I don't go to that point where I feel like I'm dumb or less than, but that God created me exactly how I am, that he made me exactly how I am to be used by him in very special ways. And I'm thankful for that to this day. This past fall, I started taking some seminary classes to work towards a master's level um, degree. And let's just say, <laughs> this year, I was fighting that dumb button on a daily basis. <laughs> it was really hard for me to make it through and to not feel that um, I was less than than the other scholars in the class. It was a very big challenge for me, but it was an exercise in rewiring my brain. But this panic, some of you might think, oh, that's nothing compared to the panic that I feel. That's nothing compared to what I go through on a daily basis, struggling with panic attacks or anxiety or some of the things or the crises that you may have in your family or in relationships. Some of you are going through horrific things and for that, I am so sorry. And some of you maybe have less. You maybe don't have huge things going on in your life, but you know what it's like to possibly have a bad day. But God, he made our brains complex. And as we've heard from the other weeks in the series, they've shown a few different ways to how our brains work. And the part of our brain um, that kind of goes off when we panic, it's called our amygdala. It's this little part of the brain that when we have panic or something that comes to us that makes us <gasps> get kind of shocked and excited or crisis or panicky, it's this amygdala in our brain. It fires off adrenaline and it helps us so that we can have fight or flight so we can survive. Now, when I was a kid, we would come home from hockey or from church or whatever, and we would drive into the garage in our beautiful brown fake wood 
station wagon with red velvet interior. It was beautiful. <laughs> but we would drive into our garage, and time to time, we would have skunks that would like to get into our garage and eat the cat food. So we would pull in, and then my parents would be like, ah, oh, those darn skunks, they're in here again. And my parents would think that it would be a good idea that we would just all stay in the car and wait until the skunk would go to the far side of the garage so that we could one by one bolt and get in the door. And then the next person would sit there, wait for the skunk's little receptors to calm down, and then the next kid would run in and get into the door. And that's an, um, what would happen is our amygdalas would go off and it would send adrenaline, which is good because then it would give us the run and the grit and the <laughs> endurance to run as fast as we can and be stealthy and get through that door. <laughs> So some of you are thinking, oh, brother, it's just a skunk. Well, replace it with a bear if you want. Whatever you need to do to make it realize. We do panic at times, and our amygdala shoots out adrenaline. But God also made another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. And this is the common sense part, and it tells our amygdala to calm down. So when we get into the house, away from the skunks, the prefrontal cortex kicks in, and he says, you're safe, you're good, adrenaline calms down. And that's like a normal, healthy way that God made our bodies. But then there are some people who struggle with panic attacks or struggle with anxiety where their amygdala might fire and go off for no reason. So all of a sudden, there's adrenaline and there's panic, but there's no reason for it. And that's often a diagnosed case of um, like anxiety disorder. And those people who struggle with that, it's a really hard and difficult thing. So if you know anybody who struggles with anxiety disorder, be loving, be caring, find strategies to help. Um, God is with you. He will help you. And, you know, as we've been going through this series, I've been thinking, I've been really feeling for people who do struggle with mental health illnesses. I just think, um, you know, we're talking about we need to rewire our brain and we need to do these things and and for those of you who reacted like, yeah, this stuff is so good. I'm going to, like, figure out that lie and rewire my brain. This is such good stuff. Chances are you have really healthy mental health. You're, you're in a good place. You're good. But for some of you that maybe have some mental health struggles that where you have anxiety or depression or hard things like this, your reaction might not be that way. It might be like you don't know how hard this is. Or it's just not that simple to rewire my brain to not do this. And I just want to encourage those of you who struggle with mental health to keep going. Keep, keep talking to a counselor. Keep talking to your doctor. Keep working with it. And trust that God has got you. I don't believe that God puts us through anything that is not for his good. We can rejoice for how he made us, even if it feels like it is crippling, even if it feels like it is a detriment to us, I don't, didn't, I never thought that I would ever thank God that I had learning disabilities. But I have been able to reach many students who struggle. I've been able to talk about my learning disabilities and help others be able to see that, ah, no, God made you beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully. And there's a lot of incredible people out there who have ADHD that are brilliant so I, I am thankful. I'm to that point where I'm thankful. And I pray that if you are one of these people who really struggle, that you can get to a place where you can rejoice even in those struggles. 
Now, I love how God has ribboned through scriptures all the way through the Bible, stuff that talks directly to mental health. And I wouldn't have known this until I started learning more and more about mental health. In the last few years, I've been speaking in churches um, about mental health and putting on some seminars with this of just a person who's not trained, who's not a counselor, but just my own experiences of how I've helped other people and what I've struggled with myself and mentoring students at the college that struggle with anxiety. And I find it very fascinating that in a lot of churches that I've talked to, I think people have this like preconceived thought that these mental illnesses like anxiety and depression, it's like a young people problem. Like, what's wrong with our young people today? They're all anxious. And you know what I found as I was speaking in these churches is that it's not a young people problem. It's an everybody. It's a people problem. I remember this one church in particular I spoke at, and this gentleman came to me afterwards in tears, and he was maybe 65-ish years old, and he was just looking to retire as a farmer. He was a tough kind of farmer, and he just cried, and he said, thank you for talking about this because... I would have taken my life. I wanted to jump off the bridge, but I couldn't because I didn't want to embarrass my kids. And he was struggling. And then I was at another church where I spoke at, and a 90-year-old lady came to me in tears, and she said, I think I'm depressed. I lost my husband a year ago, and I can't bounce back. You know, it's not a young people problem. It's an everyone problem. And I love how God shows his love for us and shows us how we can rejoice in trial and how he is with us through all of these things. An example of this is in the story of Elijah. Elijah was in an era of hard times. There was a famine going on in the time. People were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Baal. And it was not a good time in era to live. It was tough to be a Christian and tough to be called as Elijah was. But then, I don't know if you all remember in Sunday school when you learned about Elijah, he had this victory, right? He had this victory. So there was this challenge between the Baal worshipers and between Elijah. And they were both supposed to call fire out of heaven to their altar and see whose God was real, to see who would be able to call fire down from heaven. And then Elijah upped the ante, and he put water onto his altar. And he's like, see, my God is still going to come through And I am sure, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, (laughs) but I sort of, when I read this, I just think, man, like, he probably was a little stressed. Like, probably. And then when I read on, when he's talking back and forth with the worshipers of Baal, he gets kind of cheeky and a little bit sassy. I don't know if you know anybody in your world that gets kind of edgy when they're stressed, but I I love how... (laughs) how in scripture it kind of shows this. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26 and 27, it says, Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. <laughs> or maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Like, he gets sassy, right? He's, he's edgy. I think the stress was starting to come, and he's like, come on. Come on, you guys. 
But, you know, we often stop here, especially in Sunday school, we stop here because we're like, yay, Elijah had a victory and God called down fire. And it's all exciting because God won. And we often stop there. But the beauty of the story continues. And what is amazing to see God's wonderful, gentle, loving character in the story that comes next after this. Because in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3 to 8, it says, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life, but he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he laid back down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. The story goes on with some pretty exciting stuff, too, if you keep reading where there was earthquakes and <laughs> the earth shook and then God whispered to him. It's a powerful, powerful story. But when I read that particular passage, I just see the beauty of God showing a clear example of a man who just seemed like ran about two or three marathons in all that he had gone through. I just think, like, he was panicked. He was done. He was spent. Because after the fire came down on this drenched altar, he still couldn't relax because then Jezebel was chasing him, right? That's the next part of the story. She's chasing him and wants him dead. So he can't just relax and say, yeah, victory, victory. He goes off and he's like, I can't do this anymore. He's like, God, he calls out to God. And he just says, I'm done. Like, I can't do this. And then I just see this beautiful example of what to do when we face crisis like Elijah did. He got real with God. He got real, and he just was raw and honest. He was tired and vulnerable, but he still called out to God. He said, I had enough, Lord, just take my life, which is his raw and real and true feelings. But what happened, because he called out to God, is God came near. And God came to him and cared for him gently. God loved him. He sent this angel to care for him. He doesn't get after him for his feelings, his very, very real feelings. He doesn't get after him. He just comes alongside and he says, here's water, here's food. The angel just comes and loves and I just feel like that is such a beautiful example of God's character for us. That in crisis, when it's hard to praise, when it's hard to rejoice, when it's hard, we can call out to God and God will come exactly as we need him. I've had the privilege of mentoring some students at the Bible college. And it's interesting to me also how when someone's having a panic attack or they're feeling a lot of anxiety, the lies that come into their minds in the panic, one of the students in particular is like definitely call of God on her life, worship leader, excellent student, 
And in the panic is saying, I can't do school. I'm not going to graduate. I don't even know if I'm in this. Like, I don't know if God can even use me. Because in the panic, lies come in. But when we bring God in, he can calm us. He can bring us what we need. And truth comes out in the end. And that is exactly what happened with Elijah. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So we see that he was panicking. He's telling himself their lies. He actually just had a big victory. And he turned people from worshiping Baal to worshiping God. And yet he's feeling these lies because in panic, lies can come in. But when we reach out to God, when we decide that we're going to turn to God in our panic, he will come and he will meet us where we are so that we can be ministered to by him. And we can turn back to realizing, right, these are truths. And then we can worship and rejoice again. Because in this world, we will have trouble. There's that verse that says, we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Not, you might have trouble, but you will. We will have trouble. Um, After speaking in chapel at Horizon the one time on mental health, one of the students piped up afterwards and said, never underestimate the power of a snack and a nap. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty great. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to go out on a limb here because, interestingly, when I read the book by Craig Rochelle, he had a little bit of a different response to this passage. He He stated that Elijah was fixated on his problems, that when Elijah faced problems, he forgot God, and Elijah forgot that the Lord was near. (laughs) And I thought that was kind of interesting, because when I read this passage, I see a man that was spent. He was tired. He was at the end of his rope, and he still called out to God, and God came and responded and cared. But this made me think of Pastor Dave's message from last week, that we all read, and we all take in things and we have biases and we see things through a certain filter right we all have a different way how we see things so I just want to encourage you because maybe some of you read it just like the author did and you're like yeah he gave up or maybe some of you see it the way I did and he's like no he didn't give up he called out to God but can I just say that we need each other we need this church we need to come on Sunday morning and hear the word of God from our leaders. We need to keep learning and growing. We need to meet regularly and challenge each other in scripture. We need to make sure that our biases are, aren't um, causing us to not see scripture in a, in a good way because we need to challenge each other. And so I just want to encourage you to come, to come to church, to be here and to learn and to grow. So I just, and I really actually hope that all of you go for lunch afterwards and talk about this and say, what do you think? How do you interpret this? (laughs) I think it's pretty interesting stuff. But back to the rejoice principle, how then can we revive our souls? How can we revive our souls so that we can rejoice amidst the trials of life? Now, I'd like to suggest three things. One thing is that can we learn from Elijah and get real with God? Can we recognize where we're at and be honest and raw and real? Can we come to him and really admit all the things we're struggling about? Can we talk to him where we're at? Can we be real? Some of us need to think about our thought life 
Some of us need to identify those lies and not just take two minutes. Some of us might need to take 10 minutes or half an hour or an hour to really look through our thought life and see where we might be believing lies, where we need to rewire, like Pastor Kurt was talking about. It's brilliant. We do. We need to recognize where those things are so we can rewire our brains to be able to see God and see what he has for us, the truth. Some of us need to deal with unconfessed sin. Maybe there's something in our life that's tearing us down and we're just not, we're just kind of setting it aside to the corner. And it's stopping us from experiencing God fully. Maybe that means that you need to sign up for the next set free retreat. Maybe we need to go and lay those things down and make things right. Maybe some of you need to see a doctor or a counselor because you know that you've been really struggling with anxiety and depression, but um, you haven't really taken it seriously, and you really do need to get some help. So I encourage you, those of you who struggle with that to just, just try, just keep going. Get real with where you're at and get some help. There are professionals out there that are brilliant at what they do, and they can help you. So whatever it is, wherever you're at, can we be real? Can we get real with God? Can we get raw with God? Can we cry, yell, scream, complain? Can we sit down and just be real with God so that he can come and minister to us and meet us exactly where we're at? Some of you might be feeling, and sometimes I feel like this, that it's too big. That I'm thinking, like, what can God do? I'm just, I'm in a mess. And then I just think of this verse in Ephesians 3.20 where he talks about how he can do immeasurably more than what we could ever think or ask according to his power that's at work in us. So he can do immeasurably more, which means a lot. (laughs) Number two, can we revive our souls by choosing to put God first? Some of us need to think about what's taking that first place in our lives and knock it off the podium and put God in the rightful place. I know when our kids were young, it was hard to put God first sometimes and make church a priority and make, you know, family devotional times a priority because they were involved in lots of activities and it's busy. So when you're in that season of life, I just encourage you to pause and think and see if God is first in your family Some of us have gone through crises. Some are going through crises with your kids. Your kids are in um, difficult situations, and you're having a hard time trusting God, so you want to take it back. Um, Craig Rochelle talked in his book about a God box. No, this looks a lot like a Kleenex box, but I I put wrote God on it, so that means it's a God box now. (laughs) But he talked about how if we actually wrote down the problem that we're having or the trials that we're having and say, God, I trust you with this. And I put it in the God box and I lay it at his feet and say, God, it's yours. When we don't trust that God's got it, we can walk back and pull it out. And we think like, well, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't pull that out once I gave it to God. It's there. It's like, yeah, but you know that we do that in our minds. We pray and we lay it down and we say, God's got so-and-so, or God's got this problem, or God's got this thing. But then there's times when we doubt and we want to pull it out. So it's a good visual of what we do in our minds. And so I just encourage you 
that maybe it's something that you got to continue to, maybe daily, maybe hourly, depending how big the crisis or the problem is, to continually lay it back and give it to Jesus and say, I trust you with this. I trust you with this, God. So maybe that's something that you need to do to be able to put God first. Some of us need to ditch our own comforts. (laughs) I struggle with this one. I struggle with putting my own comfort in front of what God might have me to do that day or that week or what he's calling to me to do next. So I just encourage you, if you're in that place, like let's, let's think about where we're at and put God first. I like the message translation in Matthew 6.33. It says, steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions, Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. I love how that's worded. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. I don't know about you, but I I have FOMO, like fear of missing out sometimes, because I'm an extrovert and I like to be everywhere and do everything. And I think this kind of speaks to me where it says you'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. We steep our life in God reality, God initiatives, God provisions. And number three, can we choose to take time for soul care? You know, God designed the Sabbath day to represent rest. However, rest is not just putting our feet up. Sabbath rest is choosing to rest in God in his sovereignty over our lives, allowing God to fill us back up to the brim with his Holy Spirit so that we can face anything that comes our way that week. I know sometimes it's easy to let our Sabbath day be about, you know, getting groceries, cleaning the house, sitting and watching football, relaxing, doing all those things. And rest is good, but Sabbath rest is not just rest and putting our feet up. Sabbath rest is choosing to rest in God and lay those things down so that we can be filled back up and invite the Holy Spirit to fill us back up so that we can face our challenges in the week. So some of you, to take care of of your soul, some of you need to make church a priority again. I can say this because I'm not a pastor here, so I can challenge you on this. I can, I can say this more strongly than maybe the pastors can, but COVID has made it so easy for us to stay home. It's like, oh, well, I went last week, so it's okay if I stay home this week. <laughs> but can I just encourage you to come back? I just encourage you to make church a priority. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be in community with each other. We want to be able to talk to each other and encourage each other for the week that we have. That is part of Sabbath. And the part of filling us back up, because we can encourage each other to get filled back up for our week. Some of you maybe need to be challenged to join a life group where you can discuss passages of scripture like Elijah and see, what is my filter? How do I see and how do I interpret this scripture? And how do you interpret this scripture? Let's learn from each other. So I just encourage you to take some time for your soul. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. My, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is amazing how much easier we can handle our trials and our crises when we take the time to allow God to take our burdens, putting them into the God box, laying them back at his feet. It helps us to be able to rejoice in trial. In Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. We can trust Him with our souls. We can trust Him. And I just want to challenge some of you, too, that maybe don't know God as your personal Savior. Maybe you've never decided that I'm all in with God. Maybe this is a trial run where you're just learning, you know, bits and pieces and seeing, is this really for me? I'm not sure. But I just want to encourage you that, that God sent his son Jesus as a baby to be able to grow up, to die on the cross for my sin, for your sin, And he did it out of love for us so that we could be saved, so we could be forgiven and be able to be in heaven with him one day. And I just encourage you to take that step. Just give it a try. Just pray and ask God to come and be with you where you are. Be real with God and ask him in. If you do this for the first time today, I encourage you to talk to somebody. Tell somebody about it because that's exciting. And at Hillcrest, definitely... Um, The pastors and leaders here want to walk that with you, and we want to be an encouragement to you and help you so that we can face our trials in life. So can we do this? Can we get real with God? Can we put God first? Can we take time for soul care? I feel confident in our mighty God that if we work at reviving our souls, that rejoicing will come easier even in our trials. I believe over time that this is going to be a practice that becomes part of who we are. Some of you already know this. Some of you already have um, learned the art of rejoicing, even in trials. And some of you are still feeling like that feels like that's impossible. How do you rejoice in a trial? What? (laughs) So I just encourage you, I encourage you to give it a try. Now, something that I have learned from a mentor of mine, and I just wanted to share this with you before we pray, that she talks a lot about, you know, when we're overwhelmed or when we're facing trials, we have people often to say, just take a breath, just take a breath. Or if you're feeling panicky, take a breath. And she turned it, and she said, if it is truth that we have God with us all the time, he is with us. He's around us by his Holy Spirit. He is present here so evidently and strongly. He's with us. Then it's not just taking a breath. We are actually can receive a breath from God. We can receive what he has for us. So I just want to encourage you today that You can sit and you can receive a breath from God. You can receive a breath of abundant life 
that he is with you. He is for you. He created you amazingly. He made you with a purpose. He has called you to be his child and to do great things. So let's not let the trials and the crises get in the way. Let's deal with them. Let's be real with God. Let's lay them down. Let's receive a breath from God today. So let's pray. God, I just thank you that you are a good, good father. I thank you that you are perfect in all ways, that you created each and every one of us exactly the way we are. You know us, God. Your thoughts of us outnumber the grains of sand you talk about in Psalm 139. That's a lot of thoughts. So you know us intricately. So God, I ask that you would help us to turn to you, that you would help us to lay our burdens down to you, that you would help us to put you first so that we can live a life of rejoicing and abundance. God, I just pray that you would be present with people today. I pray that no one here would leave here and not be changed by you. God, your Holy Spirit is here and at work and is doing marvelous things, and we just want to turn to you, Jesus, and allow you to do a work in our lives. So, God, we're here. We see you. We thank you. And I just pray, God, that you would work in each one of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close off our service just